my first boyfriend and I broke up after fighting about whether or not the song Semi-Charmed Kind of Life was any good. But, you know, I was also 15, so whatever. Sugant. pictures seemed to be fading to black and white, until my old friend Candace Clement agreed to come on the podcast. She's a longtime music appreciator, creator, and encourager. We even played in a band together back when we were basically babies. I started our interview by asking, what's the difference between music she likes and music she dislikes? A lot of songs have the same chords in them and very similar melodies, and yet I can hate a song with an incredibly similar structure to a song that I love. And I don't know why. I guess it takes all of the different elements coming together in a way that resonates with you in the moment that you're in. And so that can vary over time and has varied for me over time. But there is examples of stuff that you will not listen to anymore. There are things I will not listen to. I just put it on and I'm like, why would I want to listen to this? Give me an example. Bright Eyes. Ah. Right? Okay. Yeah. I just can't go there. Yeah. I just don't, I don't have it in me to do that. I actually got rid of all my Bright Eyes records. It was a great feeling. I got rid of a ton of CDs, probably end of high school, beginning of college, just because I wanted cash on hand. And I, I don't think it was anything that I couldn't easily get again, but I always regretted doing that. Or later in life, I always regretted doing that because now I don't have... Soundgarden on my shelf, and I'd like the option of pulling that down one random afternoon. No, I'm glad you brought up physical mediums because I've been thinking about that a lot, and I feel like my relationship to music is very strange right now and has been heavily influenced by the mediums in which I listen to music. When we were younger, we're similar age, right? Like, first it was tapes, and or maybe first it was records, right? parents' records, whatever, then tapes, CDs. We probably both had like the bulk of our collection as CDs. I moved into like a vinyl phase and an MP3 phase at the same time. The MP3 phase, at first it was like MP3s that you actually had physically on hard drives or old iPod shuffles, right? And then streaming happened, like legal streaming. Mm -hmm. The last time I felt like I had a music collection that felt like mine was when RDO existed and then RDO sold. And now I just, I feel like I don't have a music collection anymore. Mm. (laughs) And it makes it very strange for me to know what to like, what I want to listen to because I can't look at my collection and assess from there. I have to reach into whatever is front of mind Mm. And it makes it a lot harder to find things like the Soundgarden CD. Yeah. Like something has to trigger that memory. I can't just like look at the collection and see it. And I do, I do still have a record collection, but I don't currently have a record player. So sometimes I'll just like stare at them for a while and then like pull something up on Spotify yeah. <laughs> to just like try and break out of the 
cycle of music that I'm currently stuck in. What is RDO? Oh, RDO was a pre- it was a predecessor to um, like Spotify. It was just a streaming service. Yeah, it was a subscription streaming service. Okay, but you said you felt like you had a collection when you had that, but then after that went away, you didn't. Yeah. Because just the way it was organized or you had songs that were definitely yours on there? The way that it was set up or maybe just the timing of when it was set up for me in my life, I just, I mimicked collecting albums. You know, you had like a collection and you collected things. And I think Spotify does that too, but something about the way that it seems more built around songs, individual songs, whereas Mm. RDO felt like it was built around records. And so I never reproduced my collection. When RDO shut down and, you know if you wanted to continue doing a subscription-based streaming service, you had to pick a different one. I just never had it in me to try and rebuild the collection for what felt like the fourth or fifth time in my life. Yeah. And also Spotify is terrible and I feel like I shouldn't use it. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible in terms of how it treats artists. Yeah. The whole subscription streaming industry is is generally very bad. I use Spotify very occasionally, but since I do most of my listening in the car. I still rely on CDs. Mm-hmm. Most of the CDs I listen to nowadays come not from my shelf over there, but from the library. I do a ton of interlibrary loan, just trying to discover things that I ought to already know, but never did. Massachusetts libraries, man, they're, they're amazing. They've got basically everything that I have searched for. There's plenty of obscure stuff that I, I know is never going to show up there and I'll find it on Spotify or download it off Bandcamp or whatever. But yeah, in terms of the classics, uh, things that everybody ought to know and plenty of stuff outside that territory, there's, there's a lot there. I love the library. I love physical, real media. It's just, there's something about like the search. The search used to be a big part of it. And then suddenly everything was available <laughs> and it was so overwhelming. When you say the search, it's not typing in a no. song title into the search field. It's it's the the act of flipping through records and, and discovering. Yeah. 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 Reading the liner notes and making the connections between mm. like one band and another. Do you ever take advantage of the of the weekly playlists or whatever that, that Spotify prepares for you? I don't do that. I enjoy curated playlists, but not the algorithmically derived ones are not super helpful for me, especially because my relationship to Spotify at this point is dominated by like playlists that I use when I'm running or, you know, my child's crappy MP3 lullaby playlist that she listens to at bedtime. You know, it's just, it doesn't actually reflect what I feel like is my musical taste or musical interests. What was the last piece of music that you put on, whether individual song or album or whatever? Oh, last night I went down like a deep rabbit hole. I think the last song that I listened to was somewhere on Fleetwood Mac's Rumors before my daughter's MP3. Um, Not MP3, MIDI. That's what I meant to say. The MIDI. It was like MIDI lullabies. Yeah, before the MIDI lullabies took over. But I have a friend who put out a new song that had very strong, like, Michael McDonald vibes. So then I went down a little bit of a yacht rock rabbit hole. Then I went deep into a Steely Dan rabbit hole and watched, like, three YouTube videos about Steely Dan. And then I remembered, I don't remember why I I got here, but I remembered that the greatest duet of all time is Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. George Michael, Elton John. So I listened to that. Mm -hmm. 
And then I tweeted about that. And then a friend texted me to contest that the best duet of all time was Leather and Lace, Stevie Nicks and Don Henley. So I listened to that. <laughs> and then... Did that change your opinion? It did not. Okay. Um, it did not. I, I insisted that he listened to what I said, and I don't think it changed his opinion either. And then I had typed the word fleet into the search bar. So Spotify said Fleet Foxes. I was like, oh yeah, sure. So I listened to Fleet Foxes for a while and then I listened to Fleetwood Mac and then that was it. And like, that's, I don't know, that's sort of like schizophrenic all over the place, bouncing from like one point to another. That's what ends up happening. And it, it is, it's like influenced by what you type into a search bar, right? Like yeah. that's, <laughs> I guess maybe the same thing would have happened in my record collection if I had gotten to Fleetwood Mac, Fleet Foxes would have been right next to it. So, you know. Maybe that's fair. Maybe. Maybe. Do you feel less connected to music through Spotify than you did with the with the physical media? I do. And I feel less connected to music in the era of COVID than I did pre-COVID. I think a lot of the biggest musical connection moments that I had were like com while commuting. I was in the car for like an, about an hour a day at least. Some of that time alone, some of that time with my daughter that's always been a very big space to connect with music. And then there's the just not playing music anymore because mm -hmm. we're in social distancing. Let's talk about playing in, in bands. I don't know. That's not really a question, but uh, you, you want to just riff on that for a minute? <laughs> I was thinking about this last night, actually. And I think that um, you actually get the credit for kicking off my band career. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. It was because of race car, right? It was because yeah. of race car. Yeah. You had written an extra guitar part and uh, you were like, I just really wish that we had another guitarist. <laughs> and I was <laughs> like, hi, I do know how to, you can show me. I could probably do it. So let's see, that would have been 2001. Probably around there. Yeah. All right. So over 20 years, you've been in a bunch of different bands done a bunch of different stuff you've toured you've recorded what keeps you doing it I don't know how to stop doing it I've thought about that a lot because especially as I've gotten older and like my motivation to stay up late and go to shows or even play shows late at night it's just it, it wanes but I just get so much enjoyment out of playing music with other people it's very hard for me to play music by myself I've never been very good at practicing which is why I'm not very talented at any instrument that I play but I really enjoy the process of like playing with other people. Tell me about touring. That's something I've never done and, and always regretted, but uh, you did it quite a bit. I remember those early tours with Bunnies of Swine, like the difference of making gas money versus not making gas money is a big deal. It's a lot of work to book shows in other spaces and do all that by yourself. It's a very boring and inspiring simultaneously way to <laughs> travel the country. You spend a lot of time in a vehicle trying to get from point A to point B, and then you play a show and maybe no one is there. And the fun and exciting part is usually like the other bands that you get to play with and meet along the way. And mm -hmm. I think for me, that, that was always like the best part was like getting to go to other cities and see like what their scene was like and meet the other people definitely had our fair share of very strange, surreal, fun, terrifying experiences. <laughs> like the full emotional map was, was available to us. The weirdest probably being the venue that we played in Chicago 
we had nowhere to stay that night. So the venue said, you can sleep in the green room, but we're going to have to lock you in there overnight. <laughs> I couldn't sleep because I thought we were going to be murdered. So oh my God. yeah, <laughs> but we weren't and it was fine. Did a lot of things that I maybe would never do again. <laughs> Did you feel at, at, at the end of a tour that you had honed your craft and that you were a real musician now as opposed to no. just kind of a, an apprentice at the beginning? We definitely got better at playing our sets by the end of the, sh- <laughs> the tour because we played 10 nights in a row. Yeah. That'll make you better at anything. <laughs> no, I really like I, it was the it was the connection with other people, like meeting other people. That was really the the thing that I took away from it every time. Mm. It was a really cool experience to like build that network out. And then you know when those bands did their tours up to New England, like we would help them get shows. And like I think that's how so much of the music scene, really at least the music scene that I'm a part of or have been a part of, works. Like you all kind of just work together to help each other make stuff happen. I'm curious if you've ever read Kim Gordon's Girl in a Band. I have it. I've I've started it. Uh, I'm bad at finishing books. Yeah, stick with it. For me, the, the biggest insight of the book was something that she had written way before the, the book came out. She wrote it for some, I don't know, zine or maybe a, maybe a mainstream publication, I forget. But it was just observing guys in a band from, from her perspective, from a female perspective. I decided to write about men and how they interact on stage with one another and bond by playing music. I wanted to push up close to whatever it was men felt when they were together on stage. It wasn't sexual, but it wasn't unsexual either. Distance mattered in male friendships. One-on-one, men often had little to say to one another. They found some closeness by focusing on a third thing that wasn't them. Music, video games, golf, women... Male friendships were triangular in shape, and that allowed two men some version of intimacy. But anyway, that was kind of an inelegant way to ask you about what's it like being a girl in a band? Oh, God, that's a that's a hell of a question. It feels different now than it did when I started. There were there were not a lot of other women playing in bands when, you know, like we were in a band together. Mm -hmm. Um, It was more rare, at least in the scene whatever that means. It's pretty amazing to see how that's shifted over the last 20 years. I think my own kind of approach to that has shifted over time too. When I started, I had a lot of, I don't know, like, I'm not a girl in a band. I'm just a person playing an instrument. Why do we have to make a big deal out of it? Like, (laughs) and yet also feeling at the same time, like, wait, why am I the only girl that's here? Hmm. I have really appreciated the culture shift that has occurred because it. when I first started playing music, it did feel like more competitive. There can't be multiple girls in a band or then it's a girl band, you know, like it mm. just, and I, I've, I've seen like so much of that culture has shifted. And I think a lot of credit goes to like the first, the riot girl movement, and then like the sort of girls rock camps that were built out of that and like came out of that because that's had a real lasting impact on a lot of communities. What you were talking about earlier about like the band being like a an entity that you love or something like I don't think that that's gender specific. Bands feel very similar to being in romantic relationships. Like mm. you've all the drama, <laughs> all the like all the feelings, like there's just, all those things still exist except now you're doing it with like 
more than one other person. And so like, it's even more heightened and intense. You were mentioning girls rock camps. I know you were involved with one of those for a while. Can you tell me about that experience? Yeah, I got involved with the girls rock camp in Boston and there's an international network of them at this point. You know, it's really about giving girls a space to like be loud and express themselves. And it's not a space to like develop musicality right? Hmm. Like it's not, it doesn't even matter if the participants ever pick up an instrument again. Like it's just about like dialing into those values and digging in and being creative and creating that culture where like women support each other and don't tear each other down. Hmm. I think that celebrating like all of the simplicity that can go into making music really creates more space and creativity because it's like, you know, you don't need much to make a song and Girls Rock Camp really emphasizes that. Like you got people, you got instruments, like you can do this. You don't need to know how to do it. You just start making some sounds and like you build from there. And it's amazing to see people come in and like literally not know how to play their instrument on day one. And six days later, they're playing in a band, a song they wrote in front of a live audience. I worked with the Girls Rock campaign in Boston for five years and I, I stopped when I had my daughter and yeah, I'm excited that I hope that, you know, when she's old enough to do the camp herself, I can go back and volunteer again. What's the target age for that? It was seven or eight to like end of high school, like 16, I think. Starts really young then. Yeah. And working with the younger kids was like such a blast because like, from that younger age till about 10, like they don't have like, they're not as concerned with like how cool they are or like any of that. Like they're just so creative and uninhibited. And then like they start to lose that when they get into the preteen years and they become more self-conscious and, you know, that space is really cultivated very intentionally to like keep them in that uninhibited creative mindset as long as possible and I think even with the older girls, because when, you know, you start to become a teenager, like that's when you can get into the like, I'm too cool for this. Like, I don't even want to do this. And like, I've seen the way that the camp is structured to like, kind of take people who have that attitude and mindset and like, turn them into peer mentors for the younger girls and like mm. talk about being a role model for them. Like, like you might feel like this is silly, but like you need to show the other, like do this for the other girls. And then they started doing ladies rock camps. So it was like the same exact format, but for adults. And it happened over a three day period instead of a full week. And there are so many bands that like grew out of that. The mm. people who'd never played music, who always wanted to do it. I would like cry at the beginning of every session. Cause like <laughs> there would be these stories of like, you know, this woman who's like, you know, maybe like in her forties and like, she's just always wanted to play music and like her partner like raised money from all their friends so that she could have this experience for the weekend. You're just like sitting there like, Oh my God. And then like, yeah, it's, but it's amazing. Like people like did that camp and then like, left their shitty relationships, left their shitty jobs, started a business, started a band. Like it just very, very powerful format. Yeah. What was your specific role? Were you like coaching kids or? I did guitar instruction at some of the sessions and I was the president of the board for a while. Earlier you were talking about like kind of the the competitive aspect, musicians being more inclined to I guess, tear each other down, then, then support each other. Can you give an example of, of that from the scene and then talk about ways to counteract that? 
I mean, I think when I was younger, this is what, like early 2000s, it's not like there were no women playing music, right? That's on the heels of Riot Girl and like so many other great indie bands that kind of grew out of that, but it was still like very rare. And I... I wasn't playing Riot Girl music. Like I was just playing in like indie bands and there, there just was this like strange feeling of like, I don't know, like it was very rare to have a band with like more than one woman or something. Mm-hmm. You ever hear those stories about like Fleetwood Mac, like Christine McVie was in the band first and then like Stevie Nicks showed up and like people were like, oh, it's going to be weird because there's two women. And then like, it wasn't weird and it was totally fine. And it's like, why do we even think that? Mm -hmm. But like, there is kind of this thing and like so many of the bands that were popular at the time that, or that like I knew about because of what I had exposure to, it was like, there's only one woman. Sonic Youth, there's one woman in the band. Smashing Pumpkins, there's one woman in the band. Like, it's just... I'm afraid I've got some bad news, boys. We've been knocked off the charts in the Forbidden Zone by an alternative rock band. But their bassist is a girl. It's like the scarcity mindset that inevitably leads you to like a competitive space where you're just like, well, I'm the like, I'm the one woman in the band, I guess. Like, yeah. I don't see as much of that now, which is amazing. And I, I do think that like the the legacy of Riot Girl movements in the 90s and then the girls rock camps in like the early 2000s and the teens has been a huge part of that like culture shift and even in that i've seen the shift in the girls rock movement to like sort of grapple with like the gender binary there there have been like trans rock camps that have that have started up and like lgbtq camps like it's awesome yeah i think the reason there's a girls rock camp is because for whatever reason, rock music grew up around men, and the expectation is that men are going to be the ones rocking out, and women are going to be the groupies, I guess. I mean, I think I feel like the answer to almost everything is always like, it's patriarchal capitalism, right? Right. Because there have always been women playing music, but are they picked up and supported by labels? Are they able to make a living doing it? Like, mm-hmm. there are... There have always been women play, even playing rock music, like playing the blues, like all of it. Women, women have always been there. Women have always been making music, but who we've chosen or who capitalism has chosen to like prop up and, and lift up and sustain over time, make myths around it's traditionally been men. And then like going back to like that, that era, like being in high school in like the late nineties, like women in music meant either like Lilith Fair or Britney Spears. Hmm. And like, those were the spaces that you could exist in. And I think that for me, the appeal of like rock music or or, like indie rock and like starting to discover other artists was like, oh, here's a different way that women exist in music because neither one of those at the time was very appealing to me. I've often wanted to get up on the mic at a at a local show and ask, okay, how many people in the audience right now are not musicians? And I suspect the number will be very small. Yeah. The philosophical question underlying this is, does that redound to either the band that's on stage at the moment or the scene generally? Does it make it more or less legitimate or meritorious if it has a certain ratio of musicians to non-musicians in it? I think band legitimacy is a myth. All bands are legitimate. I love musicians. I love playing for other musicians. I don't really care. 
I don't not care about people who don't play musicians, but like I am most excited to play a show to play with and for other people who play music. Hmm. I love a show where the audience is just the other bands. Like I'm totally okay with that. Like I just, who loves music more than other musicians? Like what a wonderful thing that we get to do together. All right. I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Okay. (laughs) No such thing as a legitimate band. All, all bands are legitimate. Drop the mic. <laughs>